0: Welcome to Meet the Author at the Apple Store, Regent Street, in London. Would you please welcome our guest author tonight, David Sedaris, and our special guest moderator, Jonathan Ross.
1: Hello, everyone. David Sedaris. Have a look at that. There's David Sedaris. Jonathan Ross. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you all for coming indoors from what is uh, an abnormally uh, lovely summer's day. Um, David is here uh, with his new book, uh, which I will tell you is called Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. We'll ask about that. We're going to chat a little bit here. Then David is going to read a section from the book to you, and then we'll do a Q&A with you guys. So if you have questions, keep them in your head and have a think if anything uh, occurs to you while we're having a chat. Let me start with the title, though, David. I always look forward to the titles of your books. Uh, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. Where did this particular uh, phrase come from?
0: I was signing books for this uh, woman somewhere in the United States, and she wanted me to write in her book to her daughter, uh, Explore Your Possibilities. And I said, well, I'll keep the word explore. And so I wrote, let's explore diabetes (laughs) with owls. And then I thought, that's going to be my book title. (laughs) So this wasn't
1: a found one then, because often I know when... When you are engulfed in flames, that was a found phase, wasn't it?
0: Right. No, this uh, No, this it just popped into my head. And I just thought it was such a good title for a book. But one of the first interviews I did for the book was with uh, uh, Diabetes Forecast magazine. <laughs> and, and the editor said, you know, I read your book, and I didn't see the di- word diabetes once. <laughs> what message do you have for the DOC? And that's the Diabetes Online Community. And I said, well... Focus on the word owls. <laughs> <laughs> owls is in here a couple of times.
1: Um, is that a, that's a, This is perhaps too big an assumption to make, but it strikes me that you are moving, uh, in some of your writing, away from your journals, away from your experiences, and more towards creating fiction. And this obviously is a creative title as opposed to a found title. Is there something in that, or am I just making an unnecessary leap? Mm. Uh,
0: well, I... I I mean, I I did include a little bit of fiction in this book, like little dramatic monologues just to kind of break it up a little bit. Um, but no, like, I I don't know. I'm just always on the lookout for a book title. I mean, I would imagine it's the same if you put out a record. You know, wouldn't you imagine? Like, yeah. you're just always looking for it. Or if you're a musician, you're always looking for uh, the name of your band. Like, everywhere you go, you're looking for word combinations. Yeah, that yeah. would be... What would your band be called, if you my, had a band?
1: My band would be called... You know what? Let's not waste time with that. We, I can run up to people in the street and tell them afterwards they'd like to hear what you have to say. Uh, but what would your band be called?
0: Well, I would steal the name of somebody else's band. I heard of a band recently called Wizard Sleeve. And, <laughs> and that's just such a great combination <laughs> Well, you know what that words. means, of course, do you? And then I found out what it means. And so it's even... <laughs> Isn't that fantastic?
1: It's, a, it's, a, it's wonderful on every level. Um, okay, let me ask you about some of the uh, new pieces in here and some of the recurring themes or topics that you deal with. Uh, fans of David will be happy to know that his father appears in the book yet again. Your father seems to be a gift that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> Do you want stuff past him? Are you concerned ever about upsetting him? Were you concerned when, you, when your first book came out that he and your mother might be upset by what was put in and the way you presented them to us?
0: The only thing that ever bothered my father was, I wrote something about my grandmother and my grandmother lived with us for a while and then my father had to put her in a nursing home and, and it really bothered him that I wrote about that. Um, and it wasn't his fault, he was in a tight spot. My mother said either she goes or I go. But but, and so he did what he had to do and i i thought I thought I wrote that in the story. I know I did, but he was just embarrassed or he didn't want to revisit that time but other than that, like my dad knows he's like a really confident person like i've never he's the most confident person I've ever known, so he doesn't have any doubts, he doesn't have any doubts, like he used to all my life his mantra to what I heard him say to me over and over and over again was. You know what, you are a big fat zero, and that that sounds bad today, but but that was before self esteem was discovered. And, and I don't think I was alone, I think lots of people grew up hearing that, and it's what got me out of bed every day. I yeah. thought, I'll show you who's a big fat zero, and and it and it was just what i needed. If i had a father who was just really supportive and who said who wanted to read everything i wrote and who just believed in me and wanted me to pursue a, like a career in the arts, i'd be a i'd be a drug addict. I mean, it was a drug addict, but i mean i would have <laughs> i would have been like a drug addict who didn't then turn around and write about it. Yeah. You know. So he he my dad Feels pretty good about himself. <laughs>
1: does he still? Uh, does he still favor the at-home outfit you describe in the book? The kind of relaxed dress code that he. Uh,
0: you know, my to? father. He came to visit me uh, a couple of years ago, and he looked like a distinguished sea captain. You know, like he can. He he had a suit on, and it was just the right color for him. And he had a little pocket square, and everybody said, "Your father. He's so good looking." And oh, I can't believe he's that old. But I guarantee you, right now, if you saw my father, you would also see my father's nipples, okay? That he would be wearing a T-shirt with holes in it, and you can always see his nipples through the holes in his T-shirts. He doesn't cut them out there. It just happens to be that just happen to fall there. If you saw my dad on the street right now, you would think, that man is going to ask me for money. <laughs> Yet he can, he can clean up. And go places, but he's he's uh if he's just going out to the grocery store, he just doesn't give a damn.
1: Well, maybe that's the confidence you're talking about—a kind of lack of personal vanity, you know, kind of. But at the same
0: time, he's very vain, and he is. You know, I always thought my dad had a really good sense of style. Like even the T-shirt with the holes in it—it's it's maybe not current. Do you know what I mean? It's maybe more like 1978. (laughs) <laughs> <the> style, <laughs> but he's—he I mean, holds on to things. You know, he holds on to clothes. His his closet's a mu—just a a, a a museum. No, he's an interesting guy. And I and I would never want anyone to think that I wanted anyone else for my father. I was really, you know, I mean, I think I think it's when you're growing up, you pray it was anybody else except this person who's controlling you like that. But. No, he's a pretty good guy.
1: Yeah, did, he, did he support or did he enjoy your period when you were, when you were sculpting? Did he uh, like the work you created then? Do you still sculpt, in fact? Do you think that the, the world of literature's gain is the world of sculptor's loss?
0: Oh, definitely. I, I,
2: <laughs>
0: I went to art school and so I... But see, my sister Gretchen took art lessons, right? And my dad sent Gretchen to art school. You know, gave her, she went to like sketching camp and things like that. So my father had already made it up of his mind that Gretchen was the artist. So whenever I did anything, he would say, well, <laughs> you're no Gretchen. <laughs> and But I realized he was right. I just wasn't. I mean, I never had her, I was never inventive the way that she is or passionate about it the way that she was. I thought about going back to it when I retire. Because I wasn't awful. I wasn't. I just made the same thing over and over and over again.
1: And what was what was that thing?
0: I li- what I'd like to do is I take wind-up toys apart, and then I take the motor, and then I encase the motor in wood, and then I was making models of human hearts that you would wind up. But when it was a panda playing playing a drum, it would move like this. But now it's it's burdened by by wood, and so it just the movements were awkward and. It looked like it was like a bird that had hit the window, and that was and it was dying on the ground, dying. Like he wanted to step on it and put it out of its misery. So actually, kind of nice. I, I, <laughs> I look, I saw one, I came upon one the other day, and I thought this is held up.
2: <laughs>
0: it was not. I mean, the wood. It was.
2: Yeah.
0: It was nicely crafted. And. I, know, I think I might go back to it well,
1: one day. something to fall back on. Uh, David's book, as I said, it's called let Explore Diabetes Withouts. We're sitting in the Apple Store, so obviously I can tell you that you can digitally download this book onto your various Apple devices. I believe there are other digital readers available, but let's not dwell on that. Um, uh, it's on the iTunes Store, and uh, David's going to read a section for us now, and then we're going to talk some more. Okay. And this is a section about you um, learning languages, isn't it? Is that right?
0: Yes. Uh, I, I just got back from Italy, and so uh, I got back yesterday. So I use this language program for Italian. And whenever I go on a trip anywhere out of the, you know, you know, out of, out of the UK, where they don't speak English, I use this program. Anyway, so I'm going to read a bit. On a recent flight from Tokyo to Beijing, at around the time that my lunch tray was taken away, I remembered that I needed to learn Mandarin. God. <laughs> Damn it, I whispered. I knew I forgot something. (laughs) Normally, when landing in a foreign country, I'm prepared to say at the very least, hello and I'm sorry. This trip, though, was a two-parter, and I'd used my month of prep time to bone up on my Japanese. For this, I returned to the Pimsler audio program I'd relied on for my previous two visits. I'd used its Italian version as well, and had noted that they followed the same basic pattern. In the first 30-minute lesson, a man approaches a strange woman, asking in Italian or Japanese or whichever language you've signed up for if she understands English. The two jabber away for 20 seconds or so, and then an American instructor chimes in and breaks it all down. Say, excuse me, he tells you. Ask, are you an American? The conversations grow more complicated as you progress, and the phrases are regularly repeated so that you don't forget them. Not all the sentences I've learned with Pimsler are suited to my way of life. I don't drive, for example, so which is the road to Yokohama never did me any good. <laughs> the same is true for as for gas, is it expensive? Though I have gotten some mileage out of filler up, please, which I use in restaurants when getting a second cup of tea. Thanks to Japanese 1 and 2, I'm able to buy train tickets, count to 999,000 and say whenever someone is giving me change, now you are giving me change. (laughs) (laughs) I can manage in a restaurant, take a cab, and even make small talk with the driver. Do you have children, I ask? Will you take a vacation this year? Where to? When he turns it around, as Japanese cab drivers are inclined to do, I tell him that I have three children, a big boy and two little girls. (laughs) If Pimsler included I am a middle-aged homosexual and thus make do with a niece I never see and a very small godson. I'd say that. In the meantime, I work with what I have. Pimsler is a big help when it comes to pronunciation. The actors are native speakers and they don't slow down for your benefit. The drawbacks are that they never explain anything or teach you to think for yourself. Instead of being provided with building blocks that would allow you to construct a sentence of your own, you are left to using the hundreds or thousands of sentences that you have memorized. That means waiting for a particular situation to arise in order to comment on it. Either that or becoming one of those weird non-sequitur people, the kind who when asked a question about paint color answers, there is a bank in front of the train station and Mrs. Yamada has been playing tennis for 15 years. (laughs) I hadn't downloaded a Pimsleur program for China, so on the flight to Beijing, I turned to my Lonely Planet phrasebook, knowing it was hopeless. Mandarin is closer to singing than it is to talking. And even though the words were written phonetically, I couldn't begin to get the hang of them. The book was slim and palm-sized, divided into short chapters. Banking, shopping, border crossing. The one titled Romance included the following. Would you like a drink? You're a fantastic dancer. You look like some cousin of mine. The latter would only work if you were Asian. (laughs) But even then, it's a little creepy. The implication being the cousin I have always wanted to undress and ejaculate on. And in some chapter, Getting Closer, one learns to say, I like you very much. You're great. Do you want a massage? <laughs> On the following page, things heat up. I want you. I want to make love to you. <coughs> How about going to bed? And a line that might have been written especially for me. Don't worry, I'll do it myself. <laughs> Oddly, the writers haven't included leave the light on, a must if you want to actually say any of these
2: things.
0: (laughs) One pictures a vacationer naked on a bed and squinting into his or her little book to moan, oh yeah, easy tiger, faster, slower, harder, softer, that was amazing slash weird slash wild, can I stay over? And the following subchapter, it all falls apart. Are you seeing someone else?
2: <laughs> he
0: slash she is just a friend. You're just using me for sex. I don't think it's working out. And finally, I never want to see you again.
2: <laughs>
1: Let me take that off i uh, you, got sure. something now, I want to see you. Um, uh, very, very funny. And the chapter, I think, gets even funnier. It made me laugh out loud when you start comparing the Japanese phrases that you learn with the ones you learn from the PIMS, the German course. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure you get this question asked all the time, but to what extent, presumably something like that, you can't exaggerate too much or enhance too much because the evidence is there for us to find. Um, but how much do you exaggerate the things that happen to you, the stories you tell, either recent events or from your past?
0: Well, like that particular story was in The New Yorker. And so when something's in the New Yorker, then the fact checkers call, and they called Pimsler, and they said, "Is your, is uh, the uh they double checked all the phrases with Pimsler and all the ones in all of the books." And I referred to a German, uh, my German editor, until so they called him, and so everything is uh, because I mean I don't want to be wrong, yeah. but sometimes yeah. when you're writing a story, it's like, oh damn it, you know, just because. Maybe you heard it one way, and so it turns out to be something else, and, so that, and your whole story can hinge on that, you yeah. know what I mean? But like I wrote a story about going to a taxidermy shop in London and buying a taxidermy owl, and the taxidermist had amazing things in his shop, including a human forearm <laughs> in a Waitrose bag, <laughs> and a, the head of a 14-year-old girl in a Tesco bag. And so the fact checker called, and I was like, "Please be, wait- please be the arm in the Waitrose bag and the head in the Tesco bag, because I make a joke about Tesco, and it really." Anyway, so I was, com- <laughs> I was so relieved to find out. Yes, the-, the mummified arm is in the Waitrose bag, and the human head <laughs> is in the Tesco bag.
2: So
1: if it comes to the crunch, you will check. There's an accuracy there. Um, well, but somebody it- else
0: does it for me. Yeah. I mean, the New Yorker. Uh, You know, even small things that you would think. um, I wrote a story in the book about buying uh, a a five-pound box of strawberries with my brother-in-law at this shop, and at this chain store in North Carolina. And so they called and said, they only sell four-pound boxes. Okay, I'll change that (laughs) to... But then I had written that I was in the this store with my brother-in-law and all we had in our grocery cart was a box of condoms the size of a cinder block. And so they called and said, I'm sorry, the biggest box they sell is 24 and that would be the size of a brick, not a cinder block. (laughs) But if you're writing humor, sometimes, you you know what I mean? If you're in a small conservative town on a Sunday with your brother-in-law and all you have in your shopping trolley is a box of condoms, It feels huge. Do you know what I mean? Because (laughs) everyone's looking at you and they assume that you're gay. You know, they assume that me and my brother-in-law were a couple. You could just see it in their eyes. Like, don't you homosexuals think about anything else? (laughs) And it was a situation where it feels enormous. So even if it isn't... So, do you know what I mean? Like, there's a difference between journalism and writing humor. And anymore, I have to really fight for that difference. Um, Whereas... I don't know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, you didn't have to at all. So I don't know what happened.
1: But the essence is always true, I guess, is the point. Uh, There's a section here which I'd I'd like you to read as well. There's a very funny, which is about uh, something you're doing now, kind of. It's about book tours, about you going on book tours and your requirements and the way you are with the audience. But I'm asking this because what I particularly enjoy about your work, I think, obviously, it always makes me laugh. Sometimes it touches me very much as well. But uh, the use of language is very precise, very skillful, very beautiful, and I wonder how much you rewrite. So before we ask you about that, uh, before I ask you about that, would you read this section there? Because there's a phrase in this which I just adore. Perhaps those two paragraphs would that be okay? Do we need to contextualise this, or do you think this is on a a book? On these are uh, conversations that David finds himself making with people queuing up and and often asking them things they wouldn't expect to be asked.
0: For hours each night, I would talk to people, asking pretty much whatever I wanted. The trick, of course, is to match the right person with the right question. Take this young woman I met in Boston a few years back. I'd been signing for almost six hours. When she finally, when she finally stepped up to the table, my mind went blank. When, uh, when did you last touch a monkey, I asked. <laughs> I expected never, or it's been years. But instead, she took a step back, saying, Oh, can you smell it on me? LAUGHTER The young woman's name was Jennifer, and it turned out she worked for Helping Hands, an organization that trains monkeys to toil as slaves for paralyzed people. (laughs) At her invitation, I visited the facility outside Boston and spent a pleasant hour, spent a pleasant afternoon, having my pockets picked by some of her cleverer (laughs) students. Okay, you know that was just a question (laughs) of asking, of asking the right person the right question. I mean. It was... And that's only happened to me a couple of times. (laughs) But, I mean, I could not have asked... I could... uh, I mean, I, I, that was the last thing I expected. But I went to her, to her organization. I did a fundraiser for them. And they said, anytime you want a monkey, you just say the word. <laughs> so I was on a book tour, and I said, I'd like that monkey now. And so they brought the monkey to the bookstore. And you know, you know this. You don't ever want to share a stage with a monkey. Uh, so <laughs> while I was reading, the monkey started taking books off the bookshelf. And and she, one of the things she learns to do for paralyzed people is turn the pages, and so she got next to me and she turned the pages in this book. And so of course everyone's just looking at the monkey and how adorable the the uh, the monkey was. But it was she was just enchanting. And they said any and for this latest book, owls. Yeah. I had I had owls at some of my events, and they're not as <laughs> clever as monkeys, you know, but still. You know, it's, it's something well, good to look at.
1: Well, you only have yourself to blame, not having learned from your monkey experience. But the phrase, like, I like the, the use of the words, uh, trains monkeys to toil as slaves for paralyzed people. You could have used many other words there. How much do you rewrite? How much time do you spend going back and chipping away at the words and finding the words that are the right ones? Or how, or how easily does it come to you in the first draft?
0: Um, oh, well, that was, you know... The toil, I think. I, I think I'd used the word work as slaves, and I changed it to toil because I had work in the in the uh, in the sentence before it. But I, I think at around that time that that had happened, I was I was going on TV. I think it was Le- Letterman, right? And so there's a pre-interview, and so I told that story, and they said you can't say the word slave on TV. <laughs> and I thought. Well, they're not getting paid. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> I mean they were taken from their mothers as babies yeah. against their will and trained to 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 make toast and stuff. I mean
2: yeah.
0: I don't know what else he would call that, yeah, except not, the slave. It's, it's not a relationship. Know? Yeah. yeah.
2: Um,
0: and I and I could not think of another word for it on t- so I said, Fine, I won't tell that story on TV. But And so I thought about it for the book, but I just could not find another, I don't know, that was a word to use. Um, I write things like 18 times, you know, over and over and over. But I go on these tours, and so I'll go on tour and I'll bring a story on tour and I'll read it out loud and go back to my hotel and rewrite it and then read it and rewrite it until I get it get it how I want it.
1: And you, you read it yourself. Is there anyone you read it to? We, we read about Hugh in the book, of course, and your relationship with your sister seems to be a very strong one. You don't worry about your brother quite as much. Um, maybe he just isn't as funny, I don't know. But, but, so you know, but uh, do you read it to your sisters? Do you read it to Hugh? Do you seek approval for others, or do you not require that?
0: If I read something to Hugh, and if Hugh says, that's awful, you can't say that. That's terrible. That means it's going to get a huge laugh, okay? <laughs> but but I, don't, I try not to burden him with it. Yeah. No. No, I usually, if I'm working on something and I share it with somebody, then it's just dead. I'm yeah. just killing it. I'm stabbing it, if, generally. It's better just for me to keep it to myself until I'm done with it, and then I read it out loud in front of an audience. But I read something on this latest... I just latest, went to 62 cities in the U.S., and so I wrote a new story about guns, Right? And I read it one night, and it was 12 pages long. And I got to the bottom of page 11 and realized I'd left page 12 in my hotel room. And that had never happened to me before, and I was mortified. And someone in the audience said, that's okay, we didn't like it anyway. And I thought, oh, I kind of figured that out on my own. It was just one of those situations where I was just wrong about, you know, just completely wrong. I thought it would work and just didn't.
1: But that's, uh, that's, that would be a tough subject. I don't know whether you were, it was a humorous piece you are writing or a kind of more, not political piece as such, but a kind of an opinion piece. Uh, but you don't seem to shy away from that. You mentioned earlier you and your brother-in-law, people thinking you were a gay couple. And there was a piece you wrote, I can't remember which collection, but a very very powerful, very funny at times, very moving at other times. Of, I can't remember which book it was, but you're in a lift in a hotel, some small, shitty-sounding hotel somewhere. Uh-huh. And a, a little boy comes in, and he asks you to help him with his coffee, and you... And you speculate and imagine what that might look like and what conclusion people do do you ever do you censor yourself to any extent do you worry about what you put out in the book or do you seek the opportunity sometimes to to deal with those issues
0: i don't worry about it i mean you know sometimes if you're writing about somebody else you don't want to give away their secrets but i don't worry about it with me i mean sometimes sometimes i think if you write humor then whatever you say people think you're making fun of it right like uh, where, in our village in Normandy where we used to live, there were uh, 12 houses and mentally handicapped people lived in four of them. And so I mentioned that in the story. And then at the end of the story, somebody said, why do you think it's okay to make fun of mentally handicapped people? And I said, I wasn't. And I said, I mentioned them in this, I mentioned, I think that's a high percentage. If you've got 12 houses. Yeah. Okay, and, but they just assume that if you say that word, then you're making a joke about it, and, it, and I wasn't in that situation. Yeah. So sometimes you, you, it's just a struggle to, to, to make yourself to be clear. But, but then sometimes it's the same thing. Like my family, people in my family, we never say, I love you. We never say that. Do you know what I mean? We, we love each other, but we don't say it. But there are so many people, and they, they think, "Oh, you don't. I like reading about you and your family because you hate him so much." It's like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> but they never see me saying in the story, "I love you, Lisa." And so, to them, that means that I. But I try to show it instead of saying it. Yeah. But. People have a different idea of what you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you can't.
1: You can't, and you're not responsible right. for their interpretation of it. But I guess you. But you I'm have surprised to make sure sometimes
0: when people don't see it. When it's, I feel yeah. like it's right there on the page, and people don't see it.
1: Okay. We are now going to find out what people have seen because I'm going to ask some questions. <laughs> so don't ask the one about mocking uh, the mentally ill because we know the answer to that. Uh, who has a question for David?
2: I was just wondering if you uh, go back and reread some of your older stuff, and uh, if so, what are your your favorite stories that you've written
0: oh you could not pay me to read something of mine that well act that, that I wrote a long time ago all I would see all I see are like just missed opportunities and oh why did I use that word or the worse is when you when you reread something because I, I I had to reread some old things for the BBC for this recording and there were stories that I wrote ten and 20 years ago and and I would see, let's say, the word work twice. You know, like, like I would use it in one sentence and then I would use it in the next. I think, how did I never catch that? How many times did I read that out loud? How many editors did that go through? How did I not see that? So, and so they're, they're just to me, all those, just every book is just filled with regrets and mistakes. <laughs> it doesn't but I think make... a lot of people feel that way. A lot of writers feel that way.
1: I would still recommend you read all the earlier books. Sir. I don't know if you have, because I think that's you being you. Uh, what happened, before we go to another question, what happened to the movie that was going to be made? I believe, was it Wayne Wang had the rights to yeah, but four then, or five of the essays and was going to make a movie based on...
0: Right, and then, uh, I don't know, I got out of that, and then...
1: So when you say you got out of it, so he was got out working of it. on a script, you didn't want it to happen, or...?
0: He's a lovely guy, and and I just panicked, I just panicked, I just... Because the stories involve my family, and my family didn't say we don't want to be in a movie, but I don't know. The more I thought about it, just I did. I, the more I thought about it, I thought well, I've made a huge, huge mistake, and it was there was a moment when I could back out, and so I backed out. But then somebody just made a movie out of a story in the book that doesn't involve my family. And it's from the book Naked, and and it's called COG, which stands for Child of God. And so this fellow made a movie, and it came out. I I saw it at Sundance. I saw it in February, and I think it's going to come out in September. And he's just a kid who made the movie. He's 30 years old. And it's just based on something I wrote. Like, he took my story, and he, he, he said he gave me the opportunity to to, to approve of the script, and I didn't want that. I just wanted... This is his project, so...
1: And were you pleased? Did you enjoy the experience of seeing...
0: It was just so weird to go to a movie and then hear somebody say, David, and then have somebody who's on Glee say, what? <laughs> it was, it was uh, the oddest experience. I... I uh, I, I'm the only one on earth who can't see it, really. Yeah. Because I look at it and I'm thinking, that's not what my trailer looked like. But he gave me the opportunity. It could have looked exactly like my trailer, but yeah. I didn't... And it's not a movie about what my trailer looked like. So.
1: You've written plays, though, haven't you? I know you've worked with your sister. Is it the talent family you call yourself? Uh, yeah. your, your, uh Would you write a screenplay? Or are you interested in, in nope. taking your work? At no. <laughs>
0: no, I like going to the movies, but I don't ever want to... I never wanted to have anything to do with them. You know, I never <laughs> wanted to go into a dressing room or. I don't want it to be spoiled. Yeah. Like, I don't want that. The magic
1: of the movie experience. Yeah. Oh, I can yeah. That. Uh, do we have some more questions for David? You said that you, the fact checkers, before they published it in the New Yorker, mm-hmm. checked out your story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, a lot of us perceive, shall we say, that journalists don't always do fact checking. And it's kind of just, to me, there seemed a bit of an irony in there that the New Yorker, within the culture of journalism, wanted to check out your story to be, make sure it was authentic and true and nothing was wrong. It wasn't a brick or a cinder brick or a whatever. So, I, to me, it, I just wondered whether there was actually some observations you might, in the future, bring into journalism.
0: Well, they tend to do that more, I think, in the United States I mean, magazines do. And The New Yorker is really, has the fiercest, really, fact-checking department of any magazine in the United States. Newspapers aren't inclined to do it. I mean, I see things in the newspaper, especially here, that are like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, it would not have been hard at all to, what was it, something the other day that was really kind of huge in the newspaper. And, it, and again, it wouldn't have been hard I remember in France, uh, after September 11th, I remember watching television and, le- and they said that Pennsylvania was in California. <laughs> and again, it, it wouldn't have been that hard, you know, to, to, <laughs> to ask somebody, you know, like maybe somebody knew an American, but,
2: and they could have just run it
0: by them. But newspapers don't tend to do it at all, And so I never read anything like when I give a newspa- an interview in the newspaper, I never read it. Because I, th- I thought, if you get caught up in that, then, I don't know, then you just be- kind of become that kind of control freak. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, even like, when I, when I would read things years ago, it would say, let's say, oh, I showed up and David Sedaris was wearing a brown turtleneck. And it's like, I don't even own a turtleneck, like I don't have a t- <laughs> and the story wasn't about turtlenecks, maybe that was just and it didn't matter to anyone but me, yeah. but I thought, well, wait a minute, how come I have to get all this stuff right, and you guys don't, <laughs> and maybe it's because newspapers it's like a daily thing, and they don't they don't have the time to do that but um, and uh, let's see I don't, I've never. Like the things that I've had published here in the UK, like in magazines and stuff or in, in, uh, in you know, a Saturday or Sunday magazines, they don't, they don't have fact-checking departments. So they've never asked me, you know, they've never asked me for anyone's numbers to call and, and uh, double-check. Like I had an article about rubbish and I had an art- article about Chinese food and there's never any question of that.
1: Didn't you 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 hit some flack with the Chinese food article in the States, didn't you? They Yeah. They I
0: never I, I, I went I never liked Chinese food. I just never liked it. And then I went to China and I really didn't like it.
2: <laughs>
0: okay? And so I wrote a story about it, and I was so surprised by how angry people got. <laughs> and somebody wrote, Well I'm sure they eat messed up things in North Carolina, and they do. <laughs> and go ahead and write about it. I don't care. <laughs> I was just surprised by how thin-skinned people were about it. I didn't. What was I it did mainly Chinese people that.
1: or Chinese Americans, or was it just across the board?
0: Well, I don't. Like I said, I don't read anything, but I was <laughs> told about this. But then, I was interviewed by this Korean-American guy in the United States, and he said, "Well, I read the I read one of the articles about." He said, "I read your story, and I was offended." And it's like, your mother's Korean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. Your father's not. Your mother's Korean. The story's not about Korea. It's about China and Chinese food. It's not... And I had said in the article, oh, I love food in Japan. And then people were, how dare you mention Japan when you know their history with China? It's like, no, I don't know their history with China. I was saying to somebody... um, I said, but maybe it was stupid of me expecting Chinese food to be like Japanese food just because the countries are near each other. I said, America is not like Mexico. I mean, that wouldn't be fair for me to compare. That's like me saying that American, you know, those two, so maybe that was naive of me to expect that the the, the the food of Japan would be like the food of China, but it was just a hornet's nest. I just didn't expect, <laughs> I, I was just really surprised by the, by how upset people got over it. I And uh, I don't like Chinese food.
1: <laughs> so if we could pass this gentleman here in the smart blue shirt.
0: I would call that purple. It's not, it's, it's, oh, Okay. Blue we're and red together make both, purple. We're both white. <laughs> now, maybe this is the wrong venue to ask this question, but I wonder, you've mentioned you love book signings. Do you worry that eBooks are going to put you out of, you know, take that away from you? Well, you know, a guy came up to me uh, about a, a year ago, and he had an iPad, and he said, I want you to sign my ebook." And so he gave me a little stylus... And he said, you just write your inscription right here. And then he said, give me your email address and I'll show you how this works. And so the next day he emailed me my ebook with the inscription in it. And the only problem was that he emailed me my ebook, right? So then I emailed it to three other people (laughs) and they got it with no problem. And so we went back to this guy and said, anybody, He said, yeah, that's just a little problem with it. But to me, that's like an enormous problem because it means you could just, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm 56, right? Which means that I've never illegally downloaded anything. Right? (laughs) I mean, because I don't know how. I mean, that's part of it is that I don't know how to do it. But I know a young person and he recently sent me an ebook and said, Oh, I thought you'd like this book. And it was actually a book by a friend of mine that I'd read and I said, How did you get this? And he said, Oh, it's a site. It's got all it's got every book on it. It's got all your books are on it, and they're free.
2: <laughs> and
0: I said, that's called stealing, actually. What you're doing is called stealing. But I, I mean I don't I'm happy when people say they got my book out of the library. That makes me happy. But to go to the library you have to get off your ass and go to the library. Yeah. And, and I guess that was a problem, like just illegally downloading books. You don't even have to stand up to do it.
2: <laughs>
0: and I feel like if I'm going to lose money, the least you can do is stand up.
2: <laughs> okay,
1: we, had, uh, we have another question at the end um, I just wanted to ask, in terms of your experience as an author, how do you feel that like, your motivations have changed over time? I mean, like initially, it may have been more to do with like you adapting a personal journal and then turning that into something publishable. But now, do you think like, you're more aware of the fact that you haven't, you've cultivated an audience and you know, they obviously react, as you said, to some of the things you've written? Or do you feel like you're more writing for other people than for yourself?
0: Oh, gosh. Uh, um, you know, sometimes I'll go and do a reading right, and and then I'll, maybe I'll read in a theater, and let's say there are 1,800 people in the theater, and then afterwards I sign books for people, and so I've talked to some of the people in the audience, but then if you ask me to sit down and please them, I would not have any idea how to do it, I would have no idea, and so I think I just write for myself, and then I'm, I, I don't, I don't think that I would think, uh, I, I don't think that I sense in myself that I would think, oh, this audience probably wouldn't like it if I said bad things about iPods. Do you know what I mean? Because they might have iPods of their own, and they wouldn't like that. I don't. I don't, I don't think that way. I just tr- try to please myself. Don't think I don't love my iPod, though. I love. I actually. <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to think of what an audience in the Apple Store might be like. Boo! About. Uh, hi. Do you ever find it hard as a humorist to be taken seriously when you're being totally earnest? Or oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, I do. I mean, sometimes it's interesting. <laughs> this does not happen very often, okay? It does not happen. I mean, sometimes I feel like when you write humor and you... you and you, you, uh, so There was a security guard one night in the theater when I was reading. And the security guard turned to somebody and said, they laugh at everything he says. (laughs) And I thought, uh, and I could understand what he was talking about. Because it wasn't like it was funny. I think people just wanted to have a good time. And people (laughs) said, somebody somebody told, they said, oh, he's funny. So they would just laugh at anything you say, (laughs) even when you're being serious. So no, I do find that. And it can be frustrating because it's like, I... You know, especially when you're trying to make a point. Sometimes I'll be reading a story and people will laugh. And it's like, that was like the sincere bit that you're <laughs> laughing at. But it comes in handy too. And this, like I said, this does not happen often at all. You really won't meet anyone who likes signing books more than me. Okay. And I can do it for a long time. And I, But every now and then, you'll just come upon somebody who's just really pushy and unpleasant in a way that... And so I can say to those people, I can look someone right in the eye and say, oh, I, I hate you. And they, ah! Oh. <laughs>
2: I'll
0: say, I can't wait until you're gone out of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's good then because you, <laughs> you can just say exactly what's on your mind and people think you're kidding. <laughs> Cathartic.
1: <laughs> okay, I think that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Will you join me in saying thank you for his time this evening and for his... Fabulous work over the years. So, I think the funniest writer alive today, Mr. David Sadawis. Thank
2: you. And Um, I like your earnest stuff as well.